Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Ellen Trackman here with Jennifer White. Yay, I'm here. And I just want to start out by um, telling everyone how hard we work for you to get good guests. <laughs> uh, because this particular guest, especially, I will say I first started begging her in 2019, it's 2023 now. Yes. Um, so almost four years ago, we uh, I saw her speak and I was blown away by how brilliant she was, but also how good she was at taking that brilliance and expressing it in a way that normal folk like us could understand. So we yes. were really wanting her to come on and we finally got it. Well, she did say yes back then, I think. And then I don't know, she did. We just like scheduled. And, and I think a pen, I think there's like little <sighs> pandemic thing kind of happened. So, yeah. but we are very excited to finally have her on. Yes. Here we go. I have the absolute honor and pleasure of welcoming Dr. Catherine Goh to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Goh, for joining us. Um, I guess before you even talk, I'll just gush a little bit more. So uh, for those listeners who don't <laughs> already know about Dr. Goh's impressive background, I will let her tell more, but I will just give a, a brief taste that she is currently the director of the IVF laboratory at Brigham and Wins Hospital. And she teaches, I don't know how to pronounce this, at Har- Harvard Medical School. Is that, <laughs> is that a little school called Har- Harvard. Um, but we'll let her talk more about her amazingly impressive background and stay tuned to also hear about the future of fertility treatment. So Dr. Go, where to start? How Thank did you, you first, <laughs> yes, welcome. Um, how did you first get into this field? What, what inspired you? It was serendipity. It was luck, as are many things in life. I was doing a postdoctoral fellowship in lipid research, so I thought I was going into cardiovascular research and maybe drug development. But I had used I used in vitro fertilization in my thesis when I was doing my graduate work at Penn. I was interested in what the changes were in sperm membranes right before fertilization. And IVF in the mouse was a perfect model. But I thought that that's cool. I'm I'm done. I'm moving on to something else. But my my laboratory supervisor came to me with a letter in his hand and waved it around and said, Hey, you know how to do this thing, this IVF in vitro fertilization thing, don't you? And I said, Yeah, I know how to do that thing. And he said, well, they're looking for a director of their IVF laboratory at this hospital in Philadelphia. So that's cool. I went for the interview, not, not very serious because I had already thought I was on a path, but they offered me the job. And when I told my uh, thesis supervisor, he said, if you are thinking of coming back into the field, then maybe you should go for the job at Pennsylvania Hospital in Philadelphia. They're looking for the same person. So I went over there and had the interview and got the job. So I went from being basically a prospectless postdoctoral fellow who was going to have to look for a job. Now I've got two offers. And I just remember at the interview saying, you do understand I've, I've never done this. It's never been done. I've never done it in humans. I've never worked in a hospital. I've never done patient care. And they said, yeah, yeah. When can like, you start? You and everyone else. Wow. Oh, wow. When can you start? And what What about what year was this that we're, we're That was the about? fall of 1984. And I, oh. I began in November around Thanksgiving, which I think is ironic. But it, <sighs> it was such an exciting time. I had to speak with all of the patients because IVF was so new that my colleagues who were physicians were a little bit at a disadvantage to explain Mm. all of the technical things. So I got to know the patients. I found them to be for forever, for forever. I will always remember them as the most courageous people because in Mm. their quest to have a baby, they were willing to do this unknown cutting edge thing that was at the time very controversial. Um, And I'll, I'll always remember their, their interest, their engagement, but especially their their bravery. That's so interesting. So when you were hiring onto this job, 
I mean, if you were thinking you were doing drug research initially, you probably didn't think, oh, I'm going to this very controversial area. Tell us about how that looked at that time and how you felt about it. You know, I, I guess I was so involved in getting the laboratory up and running that I didn't have that opportunity to, re- to reflect on it. it. It was the technical challenge. I had the, the clinic was big on telling me they had patients lined up. So I felt more of the pressure to get to the operational side. And I, I think that's always been the way that you just want to get everything set up to help patients get going on their journey. Um, you can't pay attention to the fact that you are under pressure or that you haven't had time to think about the, how heavy the schedule is going to be, um, the expectations. You just want to literally set up the laboratory and make sure everything is good in, and ready to go. Yeah, makes sense. And that being 1984, um, clearly you found a path that you decide to stay in the area. How did that look? It, you know, there was never a moment where I thought there could be something more exciting or more rewarding to do. And it seemed to be an evolving landscape in the most positive way from the very start. It never became routine. Every patient is different, brings a different challenge. Um, And IVF then was so simple. Um, It was really just a a three-day schedule for the patient. They would come in, we would obtain the eggs from the female patient, prepare the sperm from her husband. We would put the eggs and sperm together. The next day we would look at the eggs to determine how many were fertilized. And then the next day, day three, we would determine which of the fertilized eggs had started to become embryos, and then we would transfer those into the patient's uterus. There were and how many would you transfer? I would say I was curious as I was listening to that. I'm like, it's such an evolution in so many ways. Like, how, how many would you transfer? In 1984, and for several years after that, it was routine and desirable to transfer four embryos, no matter what the patient's age. And in fact, older patients got more embryos, but patients were, were, were fixated on that target number of four. Um, and I oh, remember wow. patients who had one, two, or three were so despondent. Um, now, you know, we, we do single embryo transfer to protect our patients against right. multiple gestations. But in 1984, a single embryo transfer was almost a failure. Wow. I, I had one patient who asked me, is it worth for me to come back and get that single embryo? And we said yes. And of course, I wouldn't be telling you that story unless she became pregnant and delivered the baby. Mm. So always, it's always been about quality, but so many things have improved. So I remember yeah. when we went from IVF being a three-day affair to a four-day. So instead of transferring the embryos the day after fertilization, we were waiting another day because we knew that some of the embryos would advance more quickly and maybe have a better appearance than others. So already we started doing embryo ranking, um, transferring the best and freezing the second best. A freezing, fortunately, was available to us very early on. The first frozen embryo that was thawed and transferred and delivered a baby was in 1984. That was from Australia. Uh, that doctor's name was Alan Trounson. He is still a giant in the field of assisted reproduction. So we, that was very important for us to have that option of freezing extra embryos so that we were conserving an important resource resource for the patient. But I think also we did not have to deal with the ethics and the ethical difficulty of what to do with embryos that we had no fate for. Um, so freezing embryos was the first assisted reproductive technology that complemented IVF. Um, after that, the, the effort was to improve the outcomes from IVF. Certainly, we had the basic technical ability to achieve fertilization and grow embryos in the laboratory. How could we amplify that so that we could get our patients from a 10 to 15% pregnancy rate in those early days? to the 60 to 80% pregnancy rates that we actually can achieve now. 
um, I remember when I was interviewing, the medical director said, I'll be so happy if you can just get us to an honest 15% pregnancy rate. That's right. Wow. And I remember the first IVF center in the United States at Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk uh, that was directed by doctors Howard and Georgiana Jones, who are, we're we're standing on their shoulders doing all of this. They brought IVF to the United States. Um, They were reporting 20% pregnancy rate. So again, that's the most experienced and the pioneer IVF program in the United States was producing 20%. That, That was our benchmark. So um, after we started doing that extra day of culture, um, we started looking at techniques that would drive two things. One, higher implantation rates of the embryo. So maybe we could get away from transferring so many. And second, how could we drive the process of fertilization? Now, as a background to that, it, it was great that throughout the history of IVF and long before IVF ever became introduced as a therapy for infertile couples, there's been a whole industry, a whole research effort to design the best culture medium, to make it what what it should be to nourish and support eggs, sperm, and then embryos. And um, for that, we have John Biggers at Harvard College Bank. He was one of the pioneers in that industry, also Barry Babister there. There are just so many scientists whose work contributed to what patients now can use to help build their families. Um, There's the Worcester Foundation, um, west of Boston. There was a doctor there named M.C. Chang, whose basic research was also important for IVF. But the, the point is that we have been enjoying these refinements to the culture media throughout this entire interval. So now we're looking at technical procedures that have names like assisted hatching. Assisted hatching was the thought that the embryo is encased in a protein coat during its earliest days. By the time it gets to the uterus, the embryo has to break out of that coat, hatch out of it. And the thinking was that if we give the embryo a little head start in that process, we might be able to get higher implantation rates. So assisted hatching was actually the embryologist introducing a small hole into that protein coat, giving the embryo a head start on breaking out. That seemed like such work? a great. It, it seemed like doesn't it sound like a great idea? Like yeah, you know, sure, sure, yeah, right. But I mean, actually, who thinks of these ideas too? Right. <laughs> that's that's right. Um, just the idea of you're going to what? You're going to drill a hole in the embryo, but it's only in the protein coated, not the embryo itself. And actually, that works for some patients, but not mm-hmm. all. And in fact, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine put out a guideline. There, and, and I love this about that professional society, that they look at all the data and they basically summarize it and say, we looked at the, all of the reports that both, that both sort of advocate for assisted hatching and those centers that report no effect. And we conclude there is not a reliable improvement in outcomes using assisted hatching. So um, there's a great idea. So they didn't, they didn't distinguish between certain patients versus others. There wasn't a clear t- line it, it, or categorization it when it would help. I think there probably intuitively is some impression that perhaps older patients, patients who are older than 38, where one worries about their, the inherent quality and implantation and developmental potential of the eggs related to ovarian aging, perhaps those patients benefit from it. And in fact, in, in the centers where I've worked, we have, we have doctors who prescribe assisted hatching more frequently for older patients. Hmm. There are some programs, there are some IVF clinics that use assisted hatching routinely or more liberally, and others that are more conservative and perhaps don't use it at all. The, the next important development in IVF was huge. It was intracytoplasmic sperm injection. So this was the technique in which now, rather than just putting eggs and sperm in a culture medium and letting literally nature take its course, we are going to give male factor patients the advantage of actually putting the sperm into the egg, uh, basically giving them the, the transit through the 
egg membrane and depositing it directly in the egg. So and I'm going to throw in here for people who you know may have heard it referred to by its little acronym is that, that you're referring to ICSI, right? That is that's yeah. exactly uh, right. And can I add it, what it looked like to a non-medical professional? So I'm an attorney, right? I, I'm not a medical professional, but um, they very kindly at this conference I went to, a fertility clinic gave us a tour of their laboratory and they let us watch up close these procedures, including ICSI. And even though I've heard it described many times and understood the concept of, you know, a sperm being taken and injected into the egg directly. Um, watching it was a whole other matter because I did not know that when they choose a sperm, they then um, smack it on the head. <laughs> I would not understand it was part of this procedure, but watching it- Wait, is it like I, clubbing a seal? Is this what we're doing here? I, I mean, I'll let the doctor speak to this, but I swear that that's what happened. They would like smack it, I guess, like immobilize it or something and then grab it. But they did it multiple times where they would like hit it first. I was like, oh, so is that is that standard procedure for ICSI? Well, you know, I, I've noticed that not only lay people, but physicians just love to allude to how we have to smack the sperm. Yeah. Or I have worse. never seen it. I'm just, <laughs> just wow. kind of shocked by it. You know, okay, actually, I, I know that that may be what it looks like. We're actually touching the sperm with the needle um, at the midpiece, and that will immobilize the sperm. Okay. So, um, okay, so you're not clubbing it like a seal, right? Wow, like, much, gonna... much more gentle than what I, what I <laughs> thought I was witnessing. You got to stop with the clubbing of the seals. Holy cow. Um, yes, the, the point of immobilizing the sperm is so that you can control it. You can get it into the pipette and hold it steady so that it's not swimming out. You're also mm -hmm. destabilizing the sperm membrane so that it's more likely to um, complete its fertilization process. Fertilization is a process. It's not a single event. The sperm has work to do once it's inside the egg and the egg has to respond to that as well. But that's the point of what you saw, the, mm -hmm. the touching of the sperm. Um, it, it may have looked perhaps as aggressive <laughs> as, I hate to use the word again, but clubbing. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. But that's the point is to render the sperm now stationary so that you can aspirate it into the pipette. And, and tell me if I misheard this, but I feel like they also said that sometimes they take off the tail because they just don't need it. Is that is that true? To my knowledge, that is not true. Okay, okay, maybe I misunderstood that. Okay, keep going. Okay. <laughs> the the abuse of sperm. I'm not. I'm not speaking of. Yeah, it's fine. We'll continue. No, uh, the the whole sperm is injected. Um, it it. Um, Directionality may not be important. I think it is possible to inject the sperm tail first, but to my knowledge, the intact cell is delivered to the egg during ICSI. But ICSI was developed by Jan Piero Palermo, or at least reported by him and his group in Belgium in 1992. So here from 1978, first IVF baby to ICSI, which was revolutionary in not only the treatment of male factor infertility, but perhaps egg-related, egg-based infertility. And it's also been important in um, using eggs that have been frozen, just um, integral to what we know now as IVF. That was 1992. We then embarked on genetic testing of the embryo. So here we have the concept of patients having multiple embryos and they may want to know, first, which embryos have a better chance of implanting, and second, implantations probably related to the genetic normality of the embryos. So you, you want to select among embryos that may have too many or too few chromosomes. You may want to help patients who are of advanced age avoid, for instance, something like a, a Down's child. And so the first iteration of genetic testing was biopsy, so removal of a single cell from an eight-cell embryo on day three. So the concept here was that you open that shell called the zona pellucida with a laser or with a gentle chemical solution, and now you aspirate one of the cells from the embryo. You keep the embryo in culture. And you send that cell off to a genetics laboratory who would perform a genetic analysis and come back with a report that said of the 10 embryos that you biopsied and sent us, we have found these embryos to be genetically normal. 
Now we have a way of selecting among the patient's cohort of embryos for the ones we will transfer. That was still an era when we were transferring multiple embryos. And I feel like even now, I mean, it seems so obvious, of course, genetic tests make sure they're they're normal. There's not some concern that would decrease a chance of success. But I still sense that there is controversy about testing and how accurate it is and whether it should be done all the time. What are your thoughts on, on those concerns? Well, that is a spot on observation and um, a good perspective because we are now in our second generation of genetic testing. First, we're no longer biopsying the embryos at day three. We're not making a genetic analysis based on one cell. That seems kind of crazy, doesn't it, to, to biopsy a single cell and to use the information from that one cell to reflect the entire embryo. Now, since again, culture media has continuously developed and also the culture environment, we are able to grow embryos routinely out to day five, six, and seven, where the embryo has acquired a more advanced stage called a blastocyst. And we can biopsy now five, five to seven cells. 10 may be too many. You don't want to take too much from the embryo, but five to seven cells seems a fair number. And we're using another type of genetic analysis called next generation sequencing. And we thought that these two things, biopsying more cells from a more resilient and advanced embryo coupled with, a next, with this newer genetic testing platform would be definitely better. But just as you pointed out, this is also controversial in that there was just a multi-center report. Uh, I believe the authors took the results from um, a number of perhaps all of the clinics that report to the Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology and the CDC, and they determined that there has not been a consistent live birth increase by using these techniques of blastocyst biopsy and the next generation sequencing analysis. So just are there you... other and other factors of analysis of, you know, healthier babies? I don't know how you measure necessarily, but other signs that it is positive or not clear still? I think this study was focused simply on live birth. If you do, yes, if you do this genetic testing, is the patient more likely to have a live born child? So it was, it did not comment on the health of the babies, although I'm sure if there were something unanticipated there, that that definitely would have been a headline. I think it was, is this testing producing the increase in outcomes that we were seeking? And the answer seems to be no. I think what, what everyone wants to do now is look more critically at this, try to determine um, why that may be. Um, we certainly know that this t- the testing is so sensitive that we have we have determined how frequently embryos may actually have two, maybe more different cell lines. So if you sample the embryo and you obtain more cells from the abnormal cell line, you will get a report that reflects that embryo is composed more of the abnormal cells. We also know that there are reports where embryos with a high number of abnormal cells have still been transferred and have delivered normal live-born babies. So that, too, has blunted the uh, promised delivery of more live births from genetic testing. I, I think we'll, it will be interesting now to see how this metric study is received and how it affects yeah. clinics and their offering this to patients. I've also been thinking, though, that especially this, the younger generations of patients are, are used to analysis. They're used to testing. It may, be, it may be unacceptable to them to not use some form of genetic testing in their embryos. Mm-hmm. Um, genetic testing is pervasive, 23andMe, Ancestry. Um, I, I, I wonder how these two countervailing things are, are going to be reconciled. But you made an excellent observation about genetic testing. I mean, that's fascinating because it, it seems so obvious, right, that the testing would be so helpful and then to have a study that cuts against what you think would be 
the opposite result, right? Exactly. Yes. Um, it, it's, it's vexing, frankly. Um, but there are some interesting research efforts going on. For instance, wouldn't it be good if we didn't have to biopsy the embryo? So there are scientists who are thinking that the best approach may be to not look at the embryo, but to look at the medium that the embryo has been growing in. So not looking at the baby, but looking at the baby's bathwater. So I've, I've heard a little bit about that. Yeah, I yeah. want to hear more about it. And I will so, say we had a guest on, I want to say, Jen, probably three or four years ago talking about um, kind was, of the I think shedding. Dr. D, Dr. Dan Trond, yeah. Who was talking about this way of testing. And it sounds like it's, you know, we we're thinking maybe with the next few years, but I, I'd love to hear kind of where you think that might be or how close we might be on that. Well, this... Wouldn't it be great if we could leave the embryo alone? And appropriately, it's called non-invasive pre-implantation genetic testing. And the idea is to identify in the culture media some marker, for instance, something that the embryo secreted, a protein that an embryo that has high implantation makes that an embryo with low implantation potential doesn't make. Or maybe it's the consumption of glucose. That area is called metabolomics, the, the study of the differential metabolism or metabolic rates between high implantation potential embryos and low implantation potential embryos. Um, so this is being avidly pursued. Uh, there are reports out there, uh, not quite reliable yet. Um, so it, it has great promise. It would enable us to discontinue taking cells from the embryos, uh, but it does require new platforms of analysis, whether that's for metabolites or for genetic products or protein products. Um, that's a very exciting field to watch. Yeah, um, yeah it'll be good to see what, see what happens there. Ironically, um, there there's a, there's a company now that that is actually trying to expand the repertoire of genetic testing that is done on the embryo. So they will do some testing on the parents as well, the two individuals providing the sperm and eggs. Uh, in addition to doing the conventional, more conventional counting of chromosomes, they're interested in seeing if they can identify genes that would predispose an embryo to developing, say, a disease as an adult. Um, so we have this. Interesting. Yes, we have that approach um, emerging. Um, and I don't know if you had others lined up that you're ready to talk about of evolving technology, but I would love to hear your thoughts on kind of third party, how much we've seen change where people are turning to the help of others of donor eggs, donor sperm, donor embryos, surrogates. Um, I mean, we see in other countries, not here, right, where we kind of, they call them like the three parent embryos, where there might be reproductive tissue taken from three people to form an embryo. What, what do you see as kind of the big leaps in technology and treatment in, in third party? Well, that's a great question. I think one of the biggest boons has been the ability to freeze eggs. And that was only, that's only been with us now since about 2012, 2013. But that enabled not only fertility preservation, so for women who wanted to freeze their eggs against the prospect of um, not starting their family in a more conventional way, in their younger years, so they ascend into their early 40s, and now their ovarian reserve is lower. They can call upon the eggs that they froze when they were 28, 30, 32, or 34. Yeah. And in fact, now when I see my when I see students and residents, and I ask them, "Have they frozen their oocytes, or do they know do they know someone who did?" The answer is now, frequently and surprisingly, mm. maybe I shouldn't be surprised. Yes. So interesting. Um, and so and I will point out that, you know, with like everything that's controversial, right, that that's controversial too, where there are some concerned that those who are freezing their eggs might 
view it as a guarantee versus just a probability, right? That there are stories of people who froze their eggs because they were focused on other elements of their life. And then when they came back to conceive, they weren't able to use those eggs or were unsuccessful. Yes. Um, it, it, it isn't a guarantee, but um, probably on a, um, on a realistic basis, if, if they froze a sufficient number of oocytes, eggs, yeah. and were, were well counseled about how many would comprise a good bank for them, they would probably do all right. Um, I'm always concerned for the patients who may be looking to egg banking when they are in a less auspicious time reproductively, mm. 38 and older. Yeah. Uh, they may have to freeze more eggs to ensure that they have a sufficient number to make a solid shot at having a baby or two. And can I ask what kind of are the general numbers of what's good? So if I was 30, what's a good number for me to freeze? I'm not I think a, a dozen. Person. And the reason I say 12, maybe 12 to 18, is that um, I was with a donor bank called My Egg Bank, which is um, headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. But when we, when the bank used to sell eggs to patients who needed them, they would sell them in lots of six. So to me, that, assuming that the donor is ideal age, so she's a young woman, she's in her early to mid-20s, uh, possibly 30, but she is at the peak of her reproductive potential, her eggs, six of her eggs were, were representing a solid opportunity to have a baby to the person mm. buying them. Got it. So, okay. um, and, and we would hope to, to get from such a patient um, 18 eggs or the opportunities to sell three batches of them. So a little commercial, a little commercial metric. I was say, a little peek behind the curtain on that one. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> interesting. Wow. Okay. So egg vitrification or freezing, what so, else did you see as the big, big You mentioned, um, you mentioned the tantalizing thing of three-parent IVF. Yes. Okay. Which we still don't have in the United States, right? The FDA is, is not happy with that prospect. So what is three-parent IVF? The idea here is that the, the hypothesis is that the reason a woman's eggs have lower implantation as she ages is because the batteries in her eggs, called the mitochondria, are just not as vigorous, and they can't be rejuvenated. If you took the batteries or the mitochondria from a younger woman and injected them into the older patient's eggs along with the single sperm from the older patient's partner or sperm donor, she gets the benefits of those younger batteries. They will literally jumpstart that egg and move it on to the embryo and to the live born. Her mitochondria will be eclipsed. So mm-hmm. mitochondria have DNA in them. So the donor's that's, DNA. That's the question. So the genetics, yes. the child is whose genetics? The child is the recipient, is, is the older woman's. It's her nucleus hmm. and her genetics that are driving the development of the baby. The mitochondrial DNA is, is not being expressed. It's confined to the mitochondria. But um, it, this, is, this, this is the truth that our mitochondria are our mother's, are her mother's, all the way back, mitochondria are transmitted down the female genetic line. So the thought is with these patients, they now have the DNA, the mitochondrial DNA of the young donor, not her, not her DNA, not in her nucleus, but in her mitochondria. So um, you have the, the, the DNA of the three individuals for certain, but only the DNA from the sperm and the egg are being expressed. And can you explain why the FDA, the U.S. Um, Food and Drug Administration, is unhappy with it? What is, what is it that concerns them? You know, the FDA uh, presides over the safety of transplanted tissue and cells. And I, I think they're concerned about the 
repercussions and, and implications of the mixing of the organelles, the mitochondria from another individual. Um, I, I, I haven't seen much movement on this. Um, it is still not allowed in the United States. So it, it seems to, I wonder if it, if it, if it lacks advocacy or if the, um, theory that a solution for the reproduction using IVF from, of older women is in fact not the use of mitochondria from younger women. Maybe the, um, the validity of this scientific approach has not been borne out. So you don't have the clamor to the FDA to look at this more closely and to mm. perhaps update that ruling. Sure. So before we go to the future, any other big ones from the past you want to touch on? I think that we have covered it. Um, I mean, there's there's so many, right? Surrogacy, right? We talk about that a lot. But, um, but in terms of medical you know, advances. Uh, there have been medical advances on the hormonal side, but I think we should reserve those for a, a physician to address a reproductive sure. endocrinologist. But I think just summarizing um, un until we move on, certainly continued design of better culture media, better incubators, uh, better atmosphere inside the incubators, um, better ways in the laboratory of ensuring that the embryo cultures are kept warm and um, we have ICSI, injection of sperm, that has allowed the fertilization, the, the biological parenthood by men who have very compromised sperm. We have the ability to inject sperm taken directly from the testis. So for a whole host of men who were thought to be intractably infertile, ICSI with testicular sperm has represented their being able to achieve parenthood of men who've had uh, battlefield injuries and who've been so grievously injured, if we, if we can recover testicular tissue, they still have the opportunity to become biological fathers. Amazing. Um, we have ovarian freezing for, and testicular freezing for children who may be diagnosed with cancers. We can freeze their tissue and this can be recovered later and reactivated so that they have an opportunity to generate respectively their eggs and sperm. Um, we have genetic testing where we're, we're hoping to um, identify may, may or may not be, be successful. Correct. By, <laughs> by the, by the current results. paradigms, right? Yes, yes. So I think the, one, of the, one of the most exciting things on the horizon is the use of artificial intelligence mm -hmm. to aid in the selection of embryos. Yeah. And so now we're talking about using imaging and that could be video, uh, time-lapse video of embryos developing, or it could be static images. But and is that, that's currently not being used. Is that right? It's used in some laboratories, okay. but I think the full commercial fulfillment of the ambition is, is we're on the threshold. There are a number of companies that are coming to the fore um, and certainly we are, we are aware of them. Uh, people are being asked to participate in studies to help build these platforms. But the idea here is to essentially train a computer, um, on 5,000 or some thousands of images of embryos that did implant versus the same number of images of embryos that did not. Yeah. And then to show the computer your embryos and the computer will rank them on the basis of what it infers is right. implantation potential from then having studied all see these images. So much more subtle than what we see, right? Because currently exactly. my understanding is embryologists kind of look at different embryos and just kind of like choose the prettiest and it might not necessarily correlate to how successful that embryo might be. Unfortunately, that's, that's true, that it is largely, what else, a beauty contest. And we are choosing an embryo that, that looks the best and that has had the best course of development. Um, we'll, we'll find out someday. Perhaps there'll be a study that will pit, that's a rough word, pit, 
but a, a human embryologist against the machine, just mm. as we do for other applications. Like and yes, <laughs> poker, chess, yes. Scrabble, and just see what the concordance is. Yeah. Um, there have been a number of studies where we have been made all too aware that the subjectivity of examining an embryo under a microscope when you're a human being is variable. You can you can show 10 embryologists the same image of an embryo and get 10 different scores. There may be some yeah. general agreement, but mm-hmm. they might rank the embryos differently for transfer. But I, the intra-embryologist variability is, is kind of um, curious, where if you were- I was going to ask, can you, can you shuffle that same, one of those images back in there again to see if- That's right. Say, ah, I, I, yes. Exactly. You show the, the same embryologist the same images, and they will assign different scores on the second mm, round. Wow. So it's that. And that's, that's just being a human being. Um, embryologists mm. do, pretty, to, do pretty well. I mean, when our pregnancy rates are, can, can be in the 60s and 70s, and it shows that, that the, the uh, principles of choosing an embryo on the basis of its cell formation, how, how well it's differentiated, all of those are valid. But can, can a computer assist us? That's what we're looking for. We're looking for yeah. that little increment that a purely objective machine that measures vectors and minutia that we can't, that'll give us the hand and that'll give us that extra how many percentage points of certainty when we choose an embryo for a patient. That's what yeah. we want. So I want to ask you about not just an incremental improvement, but kind of a major shift. I'm starting to see articles, or I have been for a little bit, of scientists taking skin cells and able to essentially transform them into reproductive tissue to eggs or sperm and to create life from those. Tell me what you know and what you foresee on that front. So that technique is called in vitro gametogenesis. So the genesis of gametes, the genesis of eggs or sperm. And it's just as you described. It's a product of all the stem cell research that has preceded it. The concept there is that you can take a cell like a fibroblast, a skin cell, and put it into culture, and you can drive it back to its pluripotential state. So basically, de-differentiate it, take it right back to baseline. So all of it, it's not anything. It's sort of a, a blank slate. And now you can induce it to differentiate into whatever cell you want. So I, you know, in an ideal world, you could develop replacement organs, new, a new kidney, a new liver, a new lung, but also you could cause it to become a sperm or an oocyte, an egg. And this has been done already in the mouse. So it's been done in a mammal. Um, I think that you can guess the the most tantalizing and the most controversial application is that if that's true, you could potentially differentiate a fibroblast from a woman into mm-hmm. sperm and um, contralaterally induce a fibroblast from a man into an, an egg. And I think it's a very exciting prospect for some couples, some families where right now, their only choice is to use a donor and that they might have the opportunity to both genetically be related to their child when that wasn't an opportunity before. Yes. I, I think it, it, we can see the, the change it would bring to reproductive endocrinology because we wouldn't have to do ovarian stimulation. Um, the, the whole laboratory could be remodeled now to a, a laboratory doing IVG, just get cells and make whatever you want. Uh, no more horm- hormonal stimulation, no more egg retrievals. Um, and how likely or how soon do you think this is? Because I'm sure there's multiple implications and ethical questions, but do you, do you see this as 20, 30 years science fiction? Do you see this as imminent? I don't quite see it as imminent, but I, I don't see the 20-year horizon either, somewhere in between. I'm not aware of any center offering anything like this therapeutically now. 
Um, yeah. And I, I think we had a speaker, a plenary speaker at the American Society of Reproductive Medicine in 2021 who actually was invited to give a lecture in which he cautioned the audience, the physicians, to think very carefully about the implications of this technology. Uh, sort of get ahead of it now, work everything out, consider all of the ramifications before introducing it to a therapeutic application. Mm -hmm. And I think along those lines, we've had, I don't know if it's the same speaker, but speaking about genetic modifications, right? That there are technology that can make modifications. I know the the big story was um, scientists in China who had tried to modify, I think, susceptibility to HIV. Yes. Um, and the concerns on that front. Can you speak to that? It's kind of, it's kind of interesting well? that um, genetic editing, gene editing, that mm-hmm. kind of fell, that's fallen off the uh, radar screen, don't you think? I do. Cause it was a little really bit, yeah. Big and I haven't heard much recently. So, yes. So do, you think people, I, do you think that everyone shied away just because of the ethical implications? Is that not just, but because of? I think there is probably active research going on. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, forgive me, I'm blanking on this great scientist's name. He's at the Oregon Health Sciences Center in Portland. Um, that, that is a center where there is active research using, um, it's called the CRISPR-Cas9 system, but, um, I have not followed that research and, uh, until you mentioned it, I, I just realized that while it was a hot topic earlier um, in this, in the, in the teens, in the early, uh, 21st century, I, I haven't seen that much allusion to it anymore. I wonder if that's been, um, supplanted by the emphasis on genetic testing and on, um, non-invasive and now non-invasive testing and perhaps now on in vitro gametogenesis. But I, I don't think IBG in vitro gametogenesis has sort of come to the forefront yet. I, I don't think mm-hmm. you could stop folks on a street and say, what do you think about this making yeah. sperm right? Not yet. But that, what if, that is very exciting and that definitely deserves to be watched. What about artificial wombs? Where are we on, where are we on those? <laughs> I guess I'm a little, I'm a little um, far away from that. I, I saw the photos of the, I think it was a... I was about to say, everybody's seen that creepy photo, right? <laughs> yes. It looked like a, a goat that had been yeah. shrunk wrapped. Yeah. Um, I think that does have a high creepy factor. I mean, as a, as a scientific thing, it's fascinating. But um, it, it, it elicits, I think, the worst fears about, um, oh, humans being developed in um, plastic bags, you know? Well, I think there's, you know, sci- sci-fi books from that go way back that I, humans being decanted, or I forget the terms they use that were grown say, It makes me think somebody's in yeah. Brave New World. Yeah, yes. Yes. exactly. Those, exactly. So. It's totally Aldous Huxley stuff, yes. But um, I, I guess I'm more focused on, on things that we could actually use and um, – I don't think the average embryologist has thought too much about the artificial womb. We're, we're all for the, the womb that resides in a woman who walks around and, and is, is fully engaged in our society. Fair enough. Fair. I mean, we, we definitely have seen um, progress in terms of options and possibilities where one of our guests came on where she was a, a, a donor of her uterus and her uterus was transplanted to another woman who was able to carry her own child and give birth. So yes, we've certainly seen those, those developments. Yes. Um, but, okay. but again, so that, no artificial that, womb anytime soon. I don't think so. But again, too far flung from, from my, my area. So I, I, I feel very underqualified to, to comment on it. But we are zero qualified, so we we look to the experts. Um, okay, any other big predictions or things on the uh, the horizon that 
you would want listeners to to know about or be excited wow, about? Wow, I, I think we have <laughs> covered it from its most IVF from its first iteration yes. to what sits on the horizon to to help our patients. But yeah. artificial intelligence is a biggie. Uh, non-invasive pre-implantation t- testing, maybe expanded testing um, for the embryo that includes predispositions to disease as well as chromosome and mutation copy numbers. Um, and we'll see how in vitro gametogenesis um, is introduced to use. Yeah, that'll be very interesting. So for listeners, stay tuned. Um, Dr. Go, I would like to go ahead and invite you to come back in um, a few years and see where we are at that point as well. So I that feel like be there'll lovely. be many changes ahead, but we thank you so much for your time and all that you do and appreciate you sharing your, your expertise and knowledge. It was both a pleasure and, and it was an honor. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you, Dr. Go, for coming on. I'm very hopeful that this will be one of many, given such a breadth and depth of knowledge and so many topics we could have talked uh, talked about. Yes. And I mean, I have to say, and I apologize if our, our humor fell flat, but Dr. Go is hysterically funny. And whether she found us talking about clubbing sperm funny or not, I mean, you know. <laughs> I'm like, she is very, very funny when she speaks. If anyone out there has a chance to go see her uh, talk at a conference or things like that, you should definitely go. Um, Again, we're going to re-talk about our plea to have people talk about like who they'd like to have come on the podcast. Um, We're at something over like 150, 160 episodes right now. So, you know, like, it's not that we're running out of ideas because there are still hundreds of brilliant and amazing people out there. It's that we need your help to crowdsource who you want to come on and who people want to listen to. So give us a call at 303-997-1903. I mean, also just separate from that, if you want some kind of action item, if you thrive off of lists and things to do, go to iTunes and click that little star and tell us how we are doing or leave us a review. Or five stars, even better. I, I just, I, that's true. I, I don't want to tell people what they have to do. I mean, you have a I choice, mean, one to five, so. Yeah, so I mean, any any number of those stars, they would be totally appreciated. So um, thank you to our team, to Amanda, to Tyler, to Melissa. We really appreciate you and all you do and all the work you do for us. And of course, thank you to all of our listeners who come back every week. Thank you. 